We're going to be studying Matthew 21. Um, and I've put in the bulletin um, the verses that we're going to look at. I, I had the hymns in the bulletin. I didn't expect it to be up on the screen here. And I put the, these in the bulletin um, because the verses, uh, because um, Amy does all this for us. And I didn't even send Amy the, the bulletin uh, email this, uh, this week because I didn't want her to feel in any way burdened at all. So that's kind of why it's in here uh, as well. So anyway, instead of being up on the screen, these are, these are here. So please follow along with me uh, with them when I, when I get to those, all right? So Matthew chapter 21 is where we're going to be, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we glorify you now, and we ask that you would please be with us. Father, we know that this text that we're going to look at now, um, this event that took place um, was glorious, and yet most people didn't even see that, didn't quite understand it, although there was singing and, 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 and joy, um, there was a ton of misunderstanding and confusion. And Father, we just pray that you will help us. Uh, we ask that you would please help us because today there is some of the very same confusion, um, even among your own people. And so we pray that you will give us the grace to see what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing and what you are revealing of him in this text. And we pray that you will help us to apply this to ourselves. We pray that you will help us even to be willing to be challenged in ourselves, to have our thinking and outlook challenged by the Savior. We pray that you will please be with us. Please teach us. Please bless us, we pray. We come with open hearts. Speak to us, we ask, by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe in the bulletin... Let me just make sure because I changed it three times. Yes, the title is The Unusual King and Kingdom. And I'm using the word unusual not in sense of weird. Some people use the word unusual in a sense of weird. I'm using the word unusual in the sense of not usual, not what you would expect. And that's what we are going to look at today is the, both the unusual king and the kingdom. And so we're going to look at this under four headings, okay? Uh, the first one is Jesus is king. That's going to be portrayed in the scriptures. The second is that he is king of the most powerful kingdom the earth has ever known and will know. Thirdly, he is king of an unlikely kingdom, an unusual kingdom. And then fourthly, he is king of a misunderstood kingdom. And then in the application, I'm going to seek to show you that I believe that he is still misunderstood, and sadly, I'm going to show you my fears and maybe offend some people here. That may happen, but sadly share some of my fears that the evangelical church today <clears throat> misunderstands Jesus as in his kingdom. And so let's, let's look at this text under these four headings. Jesus is king. He's king of the most powerful kingdom on earth. He's king of an unlikely kingdom and he's king of a misunderstood kingdom. 
Certainly, and so what we're going to do, you know the story of Matthew 21. It's the triumphal entry. You know the details of it. Go and get, go and get a colt. Bring it here. I'm going to ride on this donkey into the city. Uh, the scriptures are being focused on. This is to fulfill the scriptures, Matthew's going to say, in two places. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 9. The Old Testament is being quoted. This is what's, this is what's being said here. And at the same time, uh, all of this is going on. Crowds are there. People are excited. The anticipation is building. Jesus the prophet has come. But in this, so we're going to look at this almost topically now. You know the story, but we're going to look at this topically and see what's, what's being said here. And the first thing that, again, comes right out of this text is, is that Jesus is being proclaimed as a king, a king. Notice, again, what it says in verse 5. As he quotes out of Zechariah, it says, Behold, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. This is a king. Look at verse 9. It says this, Hosanna to the son of David. The David's promised son, the Messiah, was to be a king of a forever kingdom. This is Jesus, the king that is coming. And Jesus himself has already said it. Look at Matthew 19. Just flip over one page. Matthew 19 and verse 28. Jesus says this, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, there's a king right there. He's sitting on the throne in glory in the regeneration. Look at chapter 20 and verse 21. Uh, the uh, Zebedee's mom, uh, the sons of Zebedee's mom come and say, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus is king. That, and we've seen this before in scripture. Jesus is still king. He is king of all kings. He is Lord of all lords. Jesus is king. And that's the emphasis here. The king is coming to the city of Jerusalem. Secondly, I would say this, point number two, Jesus is king of the most powerful kingdom on the earth. Jesus is the king of the most powerful kingdom on the earth. Now, the kingdom of God has been going on for 2,000 years as Jesus inaugurated it uh, with his coming. The kingdom of God has been spreading and growing for 2,000 years. So let's look back on these 2,000 years. Let's look back on these 2,000 years and let's look at all of the kingdoms that have come and gone during that time. How, how, how many of them have risen and fallen? How many kingdoms have warred and fought and, 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 and conquered and, and sought to hold on to their power? How many of them have come and, 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 and fallen? Uh, the first one, of course, is the Roman kingdom. The Roman kingdom where Jesus was actually born, lived, and died in. The kingdom of Rome, one of the greatest kingdoms this world has ever known. One of the longest standing kingdoms, the most powerful kingdom this world has ever known. And yet it's gone. It's fallen. And in fact, the kingdom of God took it over. We're going to look at this in a little bit. The kingdom of God actually took it over. Jesus' kingdom took over the Roman kingdom. Then there was the Ottoman Empire and the Byzantine kingdom and the Holy Roman Empire of the Catholic Church. And then there was the breaking up of the nation states, and there were these great powerful nations that then went around the world to conquer Spain and, and, and France and England. And England at one point was such a great kingdom that it says the, the sun never set on the English kingdom, the British kingdom, because it was, it's, it was around the world. And then, of course, there was the Nazi kingdom that was supposed to reign for a thousand years and only lasted less than 30 
There was the Russian kingdom of the Soviet Union who brought in, a, 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 supposed to bring in a communist paradise and lasted about 70 years. And now there is the Chinese kingdom uh, of, China, of communist China. And there's the kingdom of the United States of America. And yet the kingdom of God has outlasted and will outlast all of them. Right now in China, a, a, a nation that its, its kingdom has for, for, uh, for the, since its inception under Mao Zedong, a kingdom that has been radically and vehemently anti-God, an, an atheistic kingdom. There is now 100 million Christians in China. And that's more Christians than there are in the Chinese Communist Party. This is a, the, the kingdom of God is the most, the kingdom that Jesus launched is the most powerful kingdom in the world. Through the rise and fall of all of these kingdoms, the church continued to go, grow, the church continued to prosper. And even to this day, the church is found in almost every nation. It is found growing in almost every, hostile places, places that are not hostile. The church of Christ is indestructible. The church of Christ, the kingdom of Christ is growing, will grow, will continue to grow, will triumph. It will defeat all of its enemies. Its enemies will not defeat it. It will one day rule until all of the earth, all of the earth is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at your first verse, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there was a loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. <clears throat> there is no more powerful, more indestructible kingdom than the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming to rule. That's the second point. Jesus is king. He is king of the most powerful kingdom on earth. Third point. Jesus is king of an unusual, unlikely kingdom. And we see that coming forth in this text. Now, this text is very interesting because this passage breaks from all that Jesus had done so far. Jesus, at this point, makes a complete 180-degree turn from what his strategy has been up to this point. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, where uh, Kendra had read for us the second passage, it says this, that Jesus, at the end of verse 15, it says, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, yet he warned them not to make him known. Thank you, John. He warned them not to make him known. So notice here that Jesus, up to this point, has been saying to people, don't tell people what I healed you. Don't tell people. Keep this quiet. Don't let them know. This is, this is to be quiet. Jesus is doing that. Now, notice what he does in, this, in our text, Matthew 21. He goes and he sends out two disciples to get a donkey and then to bring that donkey to him. And then he sits on that donkey and he intentionally rides it into the city with great crowds. As one commentator said, secrecy was being lifted. Jesus is now doing something intentional. He is acting out something very intentional. And in fact, it is a fulfillment of scripture. He is fulfilling the scripture. He is acting this out. And he is doing something that is public. He is drawing attention to himself in that sense. And this is actually a prophetic act. 
It's a prophetic act of what he's doing. It's kind of like when he washed the disciples' feet or when some of the Old Testament prophets were, were told by God to do something, to, to bring light to something, to, to make this or to dress this way or to, or to wear sackcloth and ashes. Here Jesus is doing something very public and he's, doing, he's, he's literally bringing attention to himself. But look at how unusual this is. Look at the attention that he's bringing to himself. It's, it's a very, very humble intention. What appears to first glance to be self-promoting is actually very, very humbling. He's riding into town on a donkey, okay? Has anybody ever seen anybody ride on a donkey? I've never really seen people ride on donkeys until, unless I'm, I'm on the mission field. That's when I see them. I've seen it in Africa. I've seen it in Dominican. I've seen people ride on donkeys. And quite frankly, it's funny looking, okay? Because donkeys are little, okay? And people are big. And sometimes the rider's little feet are almost dragging on the ground. Sometimes the rider's feet is, is, is and, and the rider is, is a, this is what Jesus did. Jesus got a young one-year-old colt. He was a fully grown colt, but he, was, he had never been ridden before. There's something miraculous about this. He sits on this young colt, and this young colt carries him into the city of Jerusalem, rides him up the hill into, onto the Temple Mount. People's clothing have been thrown on top of the colt in order to act as sort of a saddle. And, and, and then clothing is laid on the ground and, and, and branches are laid on the ground to, to prepare the way for the great king because that's what they did to kings back then. They would level the ground. They would, they would make it a smooth place for him to come. Well, here, this is an ad hoc sort of thing with, 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 with jackets down and jackets on the thing and, and this man riding on a donkey, his feet dangling, almost touching the ground. And it's all very humble. It's all very humble. That's not what people expect from a great king. It's not a snorting stallion with silver on, in his, on, on, on his bridle and a, and a beautifully a, a, a leather and tooled a saddle with, with swords and, and, and such. It's not that. It's not a man with, with great armor on and, and great majesty riding this, this, this fierce animal. This is a, a humble man, a peasant of sorts, who's walk, is riding on a camel, I mean on a donkey, and he has a cloth, some jackets for a, a saddle. And what is this? What is going on here? It is all so lowly. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. All these things have done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying... Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. Here is Jesus coming lowly. Now, the word lowly here is the Greek word praus. And some of your Bibles, because this word has a very beautiful, large range of, of meaning. It can mean gentle. It primarily does mean gentle. It means meek. It means mild. It means humble. Now, in, in, in Bible language, meekness is not weakness, okay? Meekness, and the word prowess means this, meekness is 
strength that is restrained. Meekness is strength. And there is strength. Jesus is strong. In fact, the very next verse in this that we're going to look at next is Jesus clearing the temple. Okay? There, 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 there are times when he is... When he, when he is angry and his strength comes through. But meekness is, the word means strength that is restrained, strength that is gentle, strength that, that, is, that is humble and mild. And, and we don't have an English word like that. The closest we have is the phrase that I can come up with is the phrase gentle giant. We sometimes talk of men who are very big and strong and massive men who could do much harm, but they're very gentle men, gentle giants. But this idea, and think about this, this is something of an oxymoron. Oxymoron is a phrase where contrasting opposite words come together. Like, the silence is deafening, okay? The silence was deafening. That's an oxymoron. Silence and deafening don't really fit together. Um, so I've heard a comedian say, jumbo shrimp. He said, what's that? <laughs> jumbo shrimp. Those two words don't go together. It's an oxymoron. Here we have an oxymoron that, that begins to develop, and that's this. Think about this. Think of the word kingdom. Kingdom. The word kingdom, as it's used by us, is the word that, that, that exudes from itself power and might and armies and victory and triumph and, and invasion and aggression. That's what kingdom means. But here we have a gentle kingdom. A gentle king, a meek king, a lowly king, a gentle kingdom. And this is part of what Jesus has been trying to show us. Listen to how this word, let's follow this word down through. Now, take your hand out and let's follow this word prowse, let's follow this idea of gentleness and lowly. We've already run into it in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, when Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus identifies himself as gentle and lowly. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus was outlining sort of the ethics and the, and, and the idea of what his kingdom would be like, he said this in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, there's the word proust, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek triumph, the meek win, the meek conquer the earth and inherit it and it becomes theirs. And then as Jesus' kingdom develops, and as, and as the church develops, and as, and as the ethics of the church develop, and the spirit begins to form this people, notice how this concept, this concept comes up. Genesis, in Galatians 5, it says this, but the fruit of the spirit, how these kingdom people are made, as the Holy Spirit bears this through them, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, <coughs> faithfulness, gentleness, there's our word, self-control. Just a few verses later in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about correcting somebody who's fallen into sin. And he says this, brethren, if a man is overtaken by any, in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. How, how the people in the kingdom of God are supposed to treat one another is, is brought up in Ephesians 4 when Paul says this. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is how kingdom people are supposed to live. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Or in another letter in Colossians, he says this, Therefore is the elect of God holy and beloved. You're the elect. You're the kingdom of God. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. There's our word. Long-suffering. Even when we defend the faith against those who would attack it. Look at 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's not fear of them. That actually is the word would be reverence or respect. We're to even defend the faith with meekness. You see, dear friends, we've been studying the book of Matthew. One of the reasons why I wanted to study the book of Matthew is because I wanted us to see the emphasis of the kingdom of God in the book of Matthew. And as we've been studying the book of Matthew, remember we've been talking about the fact that Jesus' kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom. And remember what I said, it looks upside-down to us. It, its value system is so different. And remember that I said Jesus' kingdom is actually not an upside-down kingdom. We're upside-down. We're fallen in sin, and we don't understand this true kingdom of God and what it actually is. But it does appear to us to be an upside-down kingdom. Think about what we've seen so far. This kingdom, this kingdom that this gentle king is about to start, this oxymoron of a kingdom, a gentle kingdom, greatness in this kingdom is what? To be a servant, to be a slave, to give yourself to others. In Jesus' kingdom, the nurse's aid is greater than the hospital administrator. In Jesus' kingdom, the janitor is greater than the president in the White House. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a serving kingdom. It's a serving kingdom. There, that, that sounds like another oxymoron. Kingdom is kings. Kingdom is ruling. Kingdom is not how like, as Hitler said. And Jesus says, no, kingdom is serving. It's a gentle kingdom, a serving kingdom. We're to love everyone in the kingdom of God. The, the members of the kingdom of God are to love everyone. To love your neighbor as yourself. To have the genuine concern for your neighbor that you have for your own well-being. Who's my neighbor? Anyone who comes into your world. Anyone who comes into your orb. Anyone. Regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their race, regardless of any their socioeconomic status. Anyone. And so he tells us of the Good Samaritan. We're even supposed to love our enemies. And so this kingdom is a gentle kingdom, a serving kingdom. It's a loving kingdom, a kingdom of love. We're supposed to bless those who curse us. We're not supposed to retaliate, retaliate and curse them. We're to bless those who curse us. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We're to feed them if they're hungry. We're to seek peace with all people. We're to be peacemakers. We're to live at peace with all people. We're a kingdom that's supposed to turn the other cheek and not retaliate. We're to be a gentle kingdom, a serving kingdom, a loving kingdom, a blessing kingdom. We're to speak evil of no one. We're to forgive as we have been forgiven. A forgiving kingdom. These are all oxymorons. A gentle kingdom, a loving kingdom, a serving kingdom, a blessing kingdom, a forgiving kingdom. 
And what are we supposed to do if we're persecuted? Flee. Not fight. Flee to the next town, Jesus said. Our leaders, even leaders in the kingdom of God, are to be servants. Peter tells the elders to not lord over others, but to be an example. The only other name for leadership in the church is a name that means servant, deacon, diakonos, one who stirs up dust as he runs to serve. Dear friends, how can such a kingdom exist? A loving kingdom, a serving kingdom, a gentle kingdom, a blessing kingdom, a forgiving kingdom. How can such a kingdom exist and exist in a world of armies and exist in a world of selfish ambition and exist in a world of aggressive power? How can such a kingdom still exist? But dear friends, it's the most powerful kingdom of the world. The other kingdoms have come and gone and this one continues to grow and continues to win people and continues to spread. Why? Because its power is in its meekness. Its power is in its gentleness. Its power is in its love. And by loving and forgiving and by being gentle and by being meek and by serving and by forgiving and by, and by uh, treating our enemies with love, we win hearts. It transforms lives. It's a stark alternative to the failed human kingdoms of this world that strive for power. It, is, it disarms people who attacks it and wins them over with love. People who experience these gentle people and are genuinely loved by them find a power here that they can't even understand and process at times. Many of you know that several years ago here in Pennsylvania, a very wicked and evil man went into an Amish school, tied up the little girls and began to kill them and murder them. And then he himself was killed. And the interesting thing about that horrible and ugly scene was the response of the Amish community to him. They forgave this man. And they even raised money for his family who now was left without a somebody who could uh, provide for them. And to watch how the news tried to report this, the cynical national news broadcasts were almost shocked into silence and didn't know how to process. They didn't know what to make of a kingdom that is so powerful as the kingdom of God. But you see, dear friends, it's a misunderstood kingdom. That's our fifth, fourth point. It's a misunderstood kingdom. That's what this is saying. This kingdom, this king, this, this king coming in on this donkey, he confounds the, the evil religious leaders. They're completely shocked by him and what he's doing. And we're going to see that as we pick up. But you can see it in verse 15. Just jump ahead. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna, son of, uh, the son of David, they were indignant and said to them, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yeah, I certainly hear them. Have you never heard? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. You don't get it, do you? The babes do. The powerful Romans didn't get it either. Pilate is going to be completely baffled. Do you not know that I can kill you? Jesus said, you have no power over me, but my father has given it to you. The disappointed crowds who are saying, Hosanna, 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 will within one week be saying, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. 
He has discouraged us. He has disappointed us. He is not the Messianic King. He's not what we expected. We wanted to see power. We want to see aggression. We want to see the Romans crushed. That's what we want to see. Crucify him. He's not for us. Give us Barabbas. This king is riding a donkey into Jerusalem to die. To sacrifice his life for others. And the beauty of what he is doing and what he did, and the love that he showed, it makes the followers of this king love him even more. So let's apply this to ourselves, dear friends. How do, what do we make of all this? Well, first of all, let me say, as I've already said, let me reiterate, this kingdom that Jesus is, 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 is making, this meek, gentle, lowly, loving, forgiving kingdom, is the most indestructible, powerful kingdom on earth. I've said that before, but I say it again. Think of what happened to Rome. Pilate is going to stroll out on a stage and he's going to crucify him, even though he knows he's an innocent man. The Romans are going to come with great power and they're going to crush Jerusalem. The powerful, great Romans. And then when the church of Jesus Christ, when the kingdom of God begins to grow, Rome for about 250 years is going to be viciously against them. They won't bow down to Caesar. They won't call Caesar Lord. They stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they will be outlawed and they will be fined and they will be hunted and they will be arrested and they will be killed and they will be executed by most vicious, horrible ways, including being fed to lions. And yet at the same time, these humble, gentle, meek people who are so courageous in the face of death. And there's that idea of strength in the midst of gentleness. They're so courageous in the face of death. This people called the church of Jesus Christ keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. They're forgiving their enemies. They're turning the other cheek. They're, they're, they're doing acts of love and mercy and kindness. They're feeding those who are persecuting them. And it becomes such an attractive alternative to the Roman people that more and more people become a part of the church of Christ until one day the Caesar himself in the name of Constantine comes to believe and the entire Roman culture becomes uh, Christianized in that sense. Right now in China, 80% of the churches that had rented commercial property in the last year have been taken and sent out of that property. They're no longer allowed to have. So churches are now broken up once again, and they're quietly in home. Facial recognition cameras are now placed in churches so that your facial recognition can be take place so that you are seen going to that church. And if you're seen going to a Christian church, then you lose social status points uh, in, in the Chinese government. That means that you can't get certain jobs because you attend church. You can't live in certain neighborhoods because you attend church. You can't, your children can't go to certain colleges because you attend church. And that's what's being happening. The Chinese government just, just recently has decided to edit the Bible. They can't stop people from reading the Bible, so the Communist Party is editing the Bible, and that's the only Bible that's going to be available. So what is the church of Jesus Christ doing in China right now? Well, they're obviously going underground. They're obviously meeting in small groups and homes. They're obviously not reading the communist Bible. They're obviously writing out their own Bibles and keeping them. But what is happening is, is that the church in China is still growing and growing and growing because one of the most powerful countries that the world has ever known, the Ch communist Chinese government, can't stop this kingdom of love and gentleness and forgiveness.
and servant hearts. See, this kingdom is indestructible. And this kingdom is powerful. But sometimes it is so misunderstood that it weds itself to the government and loses all of its power. In March of 1528, a man named Balthazar Hubmeyer was arrested. Balthazar Hubmeyer was arrested. He was 43 years old, and he was taken to prison. There he was stretched out on the rack three times. That's where they, they lay you down, tie your feet, tie your ankles, and just tighten and tighten and tighten until both shoulders pop, your hips pop, and you're in agonizing pain. Then they loosen it, they painfully pop back in, or maybe not. He was laid on the rack three times before in order to change his mind, and he wouldn't. So on the 10th of March, he was burned at the stake while his wife stood beside him, urging him to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful to Christ, to not give up. Three days later, she had a stone tied around her neck, and she was drowned in the river. What was their crime? What was Balthazar and his wife's crime? What was their crime? Their crime was that they read the Bible, and they believed it. He was a priest at one point, a Catholic priest. He read the Bible was reading some of Luther's writing, came to embrace the gospel. But then Balthazar did something that Luther didn't do and something that John Calvin didn't do and something that, John Zwing, that, that, that Zwingli refused to do, the magisterial reformers. Hubmeyer kept reading his Bible. And he came to the conviction that only believers should be baptized. He came to the conviction that the government had no control over the church whatsoever, that the church was to be a body of regenerate members and regenerate church membership. And guess what Heimbeyer's crime was? He wanted a church exactly like Crossroads Christian Fellowship. That was his crime. And guess who tortured him and killed him? Everyone who tortured and killed him professed to be Christians. Some Catholic but also some reformed evangelicals. Why? They misunderstood the difference between the kingdom of God and the government that they lived in. And they used the government force to enforce, they used human power to enforce the kingdom of God. Now, dear friends, I hope that during this time in this sermon, what you've been doing is you've been confronted with Jesus and with his kingdom. And you've been applying this to yourself, and you've been saying, what does this mean for me? How, how do I need to rethink my, my approach to life, my approach? I hope I, this, this, this thing really is so far-reaching, I can't apply it to all, all the areas of life. And I hope you think about this. How am I supposed to? Am I a good representative of this kingdom? Am I gentle? Am I meek? Am I loving? Do I love my enemies? Do I forgive? Am I willing to turn the other cheek? Am I willing to do good to those who do terrible to me? Am I winning hearts by my winning ways? Or am I different? I want to apply it in two short ways. Number one, because I believe that we, I don't want to apply this to Catholics. I don't want to apply this to the seculars. I don't want to apply this to, to I want to apply this to evangelical Christian, Bible-believing Christians. That's who we are. I think there's two ways that we are risk misunderstanding this gentle king and his gentle kingdom today. Number one, churches that self-promote. Churches that put their hope in money 
many of them the mega churches who rely on name recognition, the glamorous lifestyle of the, of the pastor, a superstar pastor, glamorous buildings, in stadium packing worship leaders, enamored by celebrities, bringing on stage the latest football player or actor or rock star who became a Christian, and using all of the world's techniques and all of the world's ways to make a church grow. Entertainment, celebrity, messages that will, that will, that will encourage lots and lots of money, lots of technology to make a church grow. Dear friends, I think we're missing the boat here. I'm having a hard time seeing all of that. And the leader, clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop on a donkey, a peasant coming in to the city to die. That's the most self-promoting he ever did. Secondly, dear friends, we live in complex times. I will grant you that. And I don't have all the answers about what I'm about to say. But please hear me out. I know that we live in a nation right now that, that, that in many ways was founded, very much strongly founded, on Christian values and Christian principles. In fact, the first people that, that immigrated into this land from outside, not the natives who were here, but those who immigrated into this land from the outside came with Bibles. And they came with their Geneva Bibles, and they came to, to live out their faith. And this nation was based, its constitution is, is so well written and based on this culture was based on the fact that we were under God. And all of that is eroding now, okay? Our rights are eroding. Our rights are being ignored. And the secular culture is now defining the culture. And secularism brings with it paganism. Secularism brings with it paganism. And, and if you go back and you study the history of Rome and you study the history of Greece and you study what paganism was like, you start to see very similar parallels with the violence of those cultures, the sexual excesses of those cultures, the godlessness of those cultures, the worship of power and the worship of money in those cultures. And we're watching that happen to our culture. My fear is, is that Christians then are tempted to fight this aggressive, mean-spirited, violent paganism that is growing in our land, we're, we're tempted to fight with the exact same pagan weapons. Christians are seeking to seize power. Christians are seeking to gather money and form packs. Christians are putting their hope in politicians. Christians are, are mean-spirited. Christians are hateful. And they yell, and they protest, and they make signs, and they scream in the streets, and sometimes they throw punches, and they call names, and they belittle, and they disrespect leaders, and they, they are part of a take-no-war, take-no-prisoners culture war. And they see the enemies, and they go after their enemies to destroy them and to crush them and to eliminate. Their enemies don't see a gentle kingdom. They see a, a kingdom that was seeking to win only by crushing its enemies. Listen to the words that Kendra read this morning in Matthew 12. 
Listen to the words and try to process this beside what I just said here. Verse 18, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. Dear friends, I don't have all the answers in this complex world. I believe as Christians we need to pray, we need to vote our consciences, we need to speak up at times and not be silenced. I believe all that. I believe that we need to contact our legislatures at times and tell them uh, whether where we think they're erring or where we need to commend them. I believe that we should be a politically active citizenship, but we need to be very, very wise and careful here. We are not to hate. We are not to be belligerent. We are not to seek to destroy people. We are not to, to align ourselves with a political power as if somehow a political party or a political personality will change and, and, and bring forth the kingdom of God. And dear friends, the United States of America is not the kingdom of God. You have not heard this pulpit politicized ever. Because this pulpit and this gospel and the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is way, way more important than Republican or Democrat. And whether the United States of America turns around or not. In my heart, I love this country and I want it to be turned around. But there's something way more important than that. It is the kingdom of God. It is the gospel. It is the gospel going forth. It is people being saved. It is people coming into this kingdom. And quite frankly, if we get caught up in the political animus and the political nastiness and the political meanness and the political catcalling and name-calling and viciousness and think that we're going to win this by political power and force and loudness, we're going to lose everything. Because no one will be able to find the gentle kingdom. Where is the meek kingdom? Where is this gentle kingdom that in the first centuries of the Roman Empire turned that world upside down? And the beautiful thing I love about the early church is that there's not one big personality. They had no, they had no political power. They had no money. Paul says, many of you, not, so few of you have any power, have any, any name recognition, anything. They were the poorest of the poor. And yet through their meekness and through their love and through their joy and through their forgiveness and through their serving and even loving their enemies, they won the world over. Dear friends, we have a wonderful message. God is reconciling the world through this gentle Savior, through this self-sacrificing Son. God is offering forgiveness. God is offering to, to wash and cleanse from sin. God is offering justification. God is offering His Son to the world. God is gently and lovingly offering His Son to the world. And we have been entrusted with that message. Dear friends, let's not lose sight of that. Let's win this world by love, not hatred. 
Let's win this world by gentleness, not contentiousness and crushing our enemies. Let's win this world through meekness, through kindness, through compassion, through forgiving, so that in us and through us, they see the gentle kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that as we live in such a violent, loud, hateful, deceiving culture that we have descended to be, culture of just hatred, a culture of take no prisoners, a culture wired to crush its enemies, even to lie if they have to, a culture that spins things, a culture where we can't even find truth. Father, we pray in the midst of this hateful, vicious world, which was very similar to the world that Jesus lived in, Jews hating Romans, Romans hating Jews, the zealots hating the Pharisees, because they weren't zealous enough. Father, we find ourselves in the exact same world. And here we see your son on a donkey dying for people, weeping for people who are about to crucify him. And we see a power here that is greater than any political action committee, a gentle, forgiving, loving savior. We see a power here that is greater than any crush all your enemies worldly power. And if we've seen world kingdoms come and go, this kingdom of love, your kingdom is indestructible. Oh, Father, help us. You've kept us alive for this present moment so that in our little world that we live in and the people that we touch are to see the hope of a gentle king and a gentle kingdom. Help us to be such people, we pray. Grant us repentance if we need that. Correct us, we pray. Change us, we ask. I, more than any, have passion and anger and have had to wrestle greatly in these things. Give us grace to be like Jesus so that we can perfectly and well reflect him in this world. Help us, we pray in his precious name.